Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They're the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I will be speaking with architect and urban designer Juan Mullerat about the characteristics of great neighborhoods and why they continue to be one of the most important elements of city building and community identity today. But before beginning the conversation, I would like to tell you a little bit more about my guest. Juan Mullerat is the founding principal of Plus Urbia Design. He was educated as an architect in the UK and traveled extensively through cities in Europe, where his passion for city planning began. He completed his studies in the US, receiving dual masters in architecture and urban design degrees from the University of Miami, where we are currently recording this episode. He has continued his passion for inquiry as an adjunct professor at the school and has lectured at numerous universities, including Harvard, UPC, and Barcelona, on resiliency, urban revitalization, city health, transportation planning, equity, and placemaking. Mullerat has authored projects on five continents from citywide parks to master plan, and he serves on several international boards and committees that deal with livability and the built environment, including as the past chair of the American Planning Association's Florida Ghost, Florida Gold Coast region. Welcome to On Cities, Juan. It is always great to speak to you. Thank you, Carrie. So Juan, I often begin by asking my guests a little bit about their background, because I'm curious to know how these early experiences may have shaped your decisions, in this case, to become an urban designer, or perhaps more broadly, your decisions uh, or your thoughts about cities. So where did you grow up, Juan? I grew up in Barcelona, in Spain, Catalonia, Spain. Um, and uh, And... You know, believe it or not, that did not, that was not the reason why I became an urban planner. Because at a young age, you know, you take the city in as a given. Uh, it was only when I moved away that I began to appreciate or I began to uh, realize what a wonderful environment that was to grow up in. Um, and it really was during my time in North Carolina that I realized that I really missed the ability to walk. Uh, in fact, I had a wonderful professor in my undergrad <clears throat> for architecture in Charlotte. His name was Nelson Benzing, and he would walk the students down this highway on uh, on grass, right, right next to a four-lane uh, highway. And um, and then he would walk us in downtown and, and sort of ask us about the experience because it is, you know, it's it's very easy to, and it's very you know, I guess difficult to get a sense of the urban space until you're actually walking it. It's something you cannot teach in a classroom. Uh, and that really, you know, shocked me. 
especially when I would go back to Barcelona during the holidays to see my family and, uh, you know, the ability to walk out of your, of your apartment and just be in, you know, in an environment of, of life and, and people and, and possibilities, the supermarket, the meeting friends down the street, et cetera. That's something that we did not have in North Carolina in the 90s, mm. in, in Charlotte in the 90s. Yeah, I mean, I feel hearing you answer the question, I think sometimes we don't know what we have until it's been taken away from us. From us. Um, and then I think that in addition to that, I find it interesting because many times people that live, let's say in the US, they'll travel to Europe and they'll think that that experience is only possible on vacation. But in fact, it's not. I mean, we can create these um, places um, around us. And in fact, if we're conscientious about it, and maybe that's where much of your work comes in. So, and we'll be talking about that in just a minute. So, um, well, I mean, maybe we can delve right into it, actually. You're the founder of the Miami-based firm of Plus Urbia. And on your website, you state that the firm is an agent of change through innovative community planning. So Juan, what do you mean by this? That is a loaded question, but a fair one, uh, given the fact that we do advertise ourselves or, or describe ourselves as agents of change. So let's talk about change for a second. Um, most people are change averse. People are comfortable with their way of life. People are comfortable with um, what they're used to. Um, and so change is difficult. Uh, and especially for cities where change typically takes a long time. Um, being agents of change means that we put ourselves at the service of those that live in the place uh, rather than imposing our own philosophies. Uh, being agents of change means that we mediate and we facilitate uh, the vision that people provide for us into actionable change, actionable, uh, into actionable uh, implementation. Um, and there is an aspect there uh, which requires a certain level of professional filtering. Um, what do I mean by that? I mean that uh, people don't always uh, have the ability to explain uh, what it is that is wrong with their environment. Um, and we have to add uh, a level of, or we have to uh, educate and, and then provide uh, our professional expertise to them so that they can uh, they can they can be clearer about where their goal, or where their goal is leading them and how to make that vision or goal a reality. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I guess what I'm hearing um, is that the, the planning strategies that you're going to describe are intimately connected to community engagement, I guess. And you've worked in a variety of neighborhoods. I mean, both domestically, we're here in the U.S., but you've also worked abroad. So I think it'll be interesting to have a conversation about how those communities um, shape your attitudes towards the designs that you actually propose for them. Um, because really, much of your work takes place at the scale of the neighborhood, and before speaking specifically about the projects, um, could you define for our listeners what is a neighborhood? Sure. Uh, the, the, I'll, I'll take this question uh, and I'll answer it in two different ways, right? There's the technical way and there's the, the way that I would explain it to a resident. Um, so putting aside the technical one, which is the one that I use the least, 
um, a neighborhood has boundaries and typically a center is something identifiable, but more than anything, it, it has physical attributes that are uh, provided for this for a specific neighborhood uh, based on zoning, based on governance, based on uh, the densities and, and setbacks and building typologies. These are these are elements that make up the neighborhood um, uh, in from a regulatory standpoint. Um, for instance, the boundary can be something uh, that you find in a map, in a municipal map. And these are the boundaries where, let's say, um, a neighborhood is organized uh, within. From a uh, more personal standpoint, a neighborhood has identity. A neighborhood has a neighborhood. A neighborhood is a collection of uh, homes and land uses that you can identify uh, that you can identify with. A neighborhood is a place where, um, you know, both physical and also social and cultural and culturally, uh, uh, those characteristics are shared within uh, an area. So culture, for instance, uh, in many cases, uh, sociodemographics uh, are things that you cannot regulate, but they happen and people identify with those. So when I go to a neighborhood, um, one of the first things that I ask is uh, to our clients is um, where where is the boundary that you want us to have or to work in? And then they show us the boundary, and then I, I we typically ask, "Are you sure these are the boundaries? Let's walk them." Let and explain to us why I am in a in the neighborhood in this block, and then the next block is something else. We can analyze that through planning right with maps and and aerials and we can you know we can see uh where a neighborhood when where a neighborhood ends uh but sometimes it takes talking to the residents to really understand it and and sometimes it is you know as as you know uh neighborhoods in a city can can end on a street right and uh and so there's there's the 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 that dichotomy of or that 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 sudden difference between being inside and being outside. Do you, in your experience, do you find that there's kind of average populations or densities associated with neighborhoods or is that varied depending on culture and context? It, it varies a lot with, with culture and context and, and location and also history. Um, the richest neighborhoods, and by rich, I mean those neighborhoods that one really does enjoy being in, um, do not have a set density. Its density varies within the neighborhood itself, as well as land uses, right? Those neighborhoods, um, and I, I say the word neighborhood with a little bit of apprehension, um, that are single use uh, and monotone in terms of their character and density and scale are those that we typically find in the exurbs outside of the city. Those are the single family cookie cutter neighborhoods. And that's why I'm saying the word neighborhoods with a little apprehension, because without having centers or having that variety of, of morphology of, of building type, uh, they become very monotonous and they're neighborhoods that I personally don't enjoy being in. Mm. 
You know, I had an interesting experience once um, as a, again, as an architect and as a faculty member here at the University of Miami, we've done quite a bit of research on what could be described as informal cities, you know, Mm -hmm. in Latin America. And I had an experience uh, walking a place that had never been mapped before. And so we had to work with the community to be able to figure out how to map the site that we were working in. And it was about 15,000 people. Um, But what was very interesting is we gave maps to everyone um, and we asked them to describe the neighborhoods and the neighborhoods had names within the map and curious names like Chippy Chippy because it was a fish that was found or, and um, we gave them to six or seven different people. And we were astounded by the fact that in the physical environment, there was no clue that there was a seam in between neighborhoods, although more often than not, they did occur at streets, you know, Mm -hmm. which became kind of boundaries, but everyone knew them, right? And somehow, at least in that community, which was not car-centric, it was walkable, it was a sort of distance that you could walk um, to get your kind of daily activities kind of constitute this kind of micro unit, which I guess we could describe as the neighborhood. So walkability is ma- a major factor in in neighborhoods. The right neighborhoods are walkable and the distances between center and edge typically is a walkable one. Those are the traditional ones. So that's how we started building our cities. And a city, by the way, uh, I know we're asking about neighborhoods, but a city is a collection of neighborhoods. Um, and it typically starts you know, historically it starts, the city starts with one neighborhood, which becomes the center. Um, but, but yes, what you are, what you are describing is the, the social and cultural aspect of a neighborhood, which you, you won't find in a planning document or in a, in a, in a regulating document. Yeah. Uh, and those are just as important as, you know, the, 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 the regulating documents that our elected officials sign off on. Yeah, indeed. So, I mean, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot, you know, with all your studies and all your travels, if you could be transported, do you have a favorite neighborhood that you could be transported to right now? You are putting me on the spot. I have many favorite neighborhoods, but, um, and I, I, I would hate to pick one over another. Um, I, I, I'll tell you, I have, I don't think I can give you an answer. What I can tell you is that I, I, I really do enjoy um, being in different cities. Um, and what I do enjoy is when I find that these cities have different neighborhoods that uh, provide that ri- those rich environments that you can um, that you can be in different places within the same city and, and have different experiences. Miami is one of them. New York is another one with Brooklyn and Williamsburg. and and I'm just telling you two major cities. I could tell you of smaller cities as well. Um, uh, but but one of the things that I do enjoy the most um, of cities, or one of the one of the things that I that I, I that really piques my interest is the preservation of some of these neighborhoods and how that uh, preservation of those neighborhoods uh, protects the character. And when cities do not protect their neighborhoods and the character and the history of their neighborhoods, then you begin to lose that aspect of identity. And so I know I'm not answering your question directly. I'm not picking a single neighborhood. You're not, Juan. You're being very politically correct. And it's not about that. Is that is that is that really I don't enjoy one single neighborhood because I, I like, I mean, it's it's 
it's it's it's like having a it's like telling you that I enjoy a meal because of a single ingredient. Um, I mean, if 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 you can, if you could imagine a city as an entire meal uh, with different courses and different tastes, uh, you would not ask for everything to be sweet or everything to be sour. It's that is that is that is that amazing. Uh, community of flavors that uh, that provides the enjoyment right so if a city is monotone with one single type of neighborhood you'll get tired of it immediately yeah uh, and it's well actually let's let's talk a little bit about uh, miami you mentioned miami earlier and miami is a polycentric city um that is made up of a patchwork of neighborhoods and uh, you've done some very important work here in at least two of these neighbor well actually multiple neighborhoods but perhaps we'll start by talking about one of them and this will give you give us a chance to talk about the question of neighborhood revitalization um so Tell us about the project for Wynwood Norte, and and maybe before the project, you describe Wynwood for our listeners that um, may be less familiar with Miami. So, so before I tell you about Wynwood, I think that I need to describe the district, and the district lies to the south of Wynwood Norte. Wynwood Norte is, uh, to answer uh, your question directly, is a mostly residential neighborhood that is to the north of Wynwood. Norte in Spanish means north, so Wynwood Norte is to the north of the district of Wynwood, which is uh, which was originally a warehouse district. Uh, and by originally, I don't mean in the 1920s. I, I mean just 10 years ago, right? And uh, this is where the riots happened in the 80s, right? And the, you know, and, and people got killed, and it was dangerous. It was um, and back in 2015, when we got engaged uh, to do the master plan, um, there were a few uh, very forward-thinking visionary developers that had been buying properties. Uh, the most uh, the most famous one it was uh, Tony Goldman from Goldman Properties, uh, who bought a few properties and then you know turned a warehouse parking lot into what we now know as Wynwood uh, Walls. Okay, so there was an interest to revitalize the entire area and and spread the idea of Wynwood Walls to the entire district. And we did that master plan, and it was um, quite successful. We called it the NRD1. NRD stands for Neighborhood uh, Revitalization District. Um, and it is, uh, and the, the, the name actually was invented specifically for um, for Wynwood because the the zoning code did not have a revitalization uh, piece for the code. Uh, what we did have with, was a conservation piece, which was the NCD, the Neighborhood Conservation District. But in truth, there was very little from an architectural standpoint that we wanted to, quote unquote, conserve uh, of that neighborhood. So we revitalized. Mind you, Revitalization also includes a level of protection of the identity, and the identity that had been building over time was that of graffiti and mural art, public uh, public, public mural art. Okay, so that was Winwood. We did a new code, and you know, I mean, I recommend that anybody that's listening to us, uh, well, I really don't have to recommend that anybody that comes to Miami they they go to two places, they go to Miami Beach. 
and they go to Wynwood. Now it's the it's it's a world renowned destination. So Wynwood Norte is really not a destination. It's the neighborhood that lies to the north, and it provided housing for a lot of the people that used to work in the in the district. Um, and what happened was that to the north of it we had the design district. To the east of it, we had Midtown, which is also de- being developed with high rises. And to the south, we suddenly had this very successful uh, revitalizing, right, in process of revitalizing neighborhood. And this little place of 200 acres, not that little, but that, that neighborhood was um, entrenched in this pocket uh, of, uh, of Miami. And they were fearful that the high rises were coming right? There was a fear of gentrification. There was a fear of displacement. There was a fear of lost of lost identity. Are we Wynwood? Are we design district? No, we are ourselves, right? So they engaged us to do a master plan for it to see what we could, um, see if, we, if the city would adopt a vision for this neighborhood that was theirs. It was not, you know, the, the, the district, it was, it was, it was theirs. And we put together a plan that um, encouraged development because revitalization means development. So it, it took quite a bit of education and uh, and working with the neighborhood to uh, explain to them that it's not about keeping developers away. Uh, if you keep them away, uh, you will uh, you, 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 you will not be able to create new housing. You will not be able to improve your neighborhood. So it was encouraging developers to come and behave in a way that uh, where the character would not be lost. And therefore, we had to establish what character that was and, um, and set new regulations uh, so that the right type of development would happen over time within the neighborhood in an incremental manner. When you say right type of policies or right type, right type of development, what do you mean by that? So the right type, <clears throat> there's not a right type for all the neighborhoods. Each neighborhood is unique. Uh, and the way that we approach it is, um, and, and I, I can't take credit for this. This is my wife, who's a historic preservationist. Uh, the way that we approach it is we do uh, an X-ray of the community and we spend quite a bit of time uh, analyzing what existed uh, what exists in the neighborhood today and how it got built. And in Miami, because we're a very young city, typically is the early uh, 20s, uh, teens and 20s, where the most characteristic architecture uh, of these neighborhoods happen. In the case of Wynwood Norte, it was a two and three story. Um, there were several types, but there was two and three story apartment buildings, uh, central corridor, and then there were smaller bungalows that existed there. And so why is that the right type? Because it's the most, it's the one that the people in the neighborhood had identified best. And it is the one that could be retrofitted in a way that it would provide the affordable housing and the, um, not just affordable, but affordable workforce and, and market uh, housing for a neighborhood that sorely needed uh, new uh, housing development. 
So um, what I'm hearing is that it's a kind of mid-scale density, right? Yes. You're you're looking at something that is beyond the single the obviously the detached single family residential bungalows that you're talking about, but perhaps not the kind of hyper densities that you would find in the city center. And and oftentimes at least in a place like Miami, this seems like a very difficult proposition because land values are, so you know, high. so high. So how do you do that? How do you um, set in place something that is maybe denser than what exists, but not as dense as what perhaps the market would like? Okay, so 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 this is where I need to dispel the 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 notion that density means height, right? Um, I can tell you, and and I was giving a presentation yesterday in Broward about density. And um, I have many examples. The one that I was showing them yesterday was um, a high-rise in Brickell called the Santa Maria, which is 124 dwelling units an acre. And it's, uh, I forget, it's something like 28, 30 stories high. And the Woodward in Little Havana, which is a three-story building with 154, right? Three stories, 154 dwelling units an acre versus the Santa Maria, which is uh, 124. Um, why is a three-story building denser than a high-rise? Well, for one, it is much more uh, efficient. It requires less corridors. It requires less, you know, of the non-leasable space. Um, It does not have privatized amenities, which is something that we are beginning to see that architects and developers are departing from. The amenity is the neighborhood itself. The amenity is the public park, the public pool, the street, only if we improve it, but the street. So everything is public is publicly owned. And the buildings are the buildings are supposed to be for housing. The the other thing that the 1920s buildings do is they don't provide the amount of parking that is uh, at this point a little egregious in most cities in the United States. Uh, in the case of Miami, you know, we have a 1.5 uh, to, you know, a 1.5 parking per uh, per unit, regardless of how big the unit is. So if you have a small unit and you're parking 1.5 cars, which in essence is two cars, right? You, it's not like you're going to cut your car in half. So you they're asking for two cars uh, for a studio apartment or for a six-bedroom mansion. It, it just, right? So... Lack of parking, or not lack of parking, but reduced parking and learning that the neighborhood can be your amenity means that it's much more efficient. So height and density is not always paired. Um, And then, so that's the high rise. So why not high rise? Because they're not efficient. They're not part of the character of the neighborhood. And it is that scale that we found in that neighborhood that we wanted to stick with. And so our proposal uh, which was adopted, in, uh, you know, with some changes a couple of years later, but it was adopted, was um, for more of that mid-rise, uh, small incremental apartment building, which was already there. It's just that our zoning code was not allowing anybody to build it anymore because we over-regulated uh, our cities to a point that you, you know, the only efficient, the, the only the only uh, economically feasible, and this is a developer term that I keep on hearing, it's not economically feasible to build anything but single family and high rise. Well, that's not really true. But 
that's what the that's what the regulations today in Miami uh, have us do. Yeah, I mean, I think you made a lot of excellent points there, and I think points that are oftentimes seemingly counterintuitive because you're absolutely right, especially in the context that we're in. There's the immediate um, kind of default is to build, um, you know, high rises, which I think you're putting on the table the possibility of looking more holistic at a neighborhood. And if you look more holistically, you can build incremental densities, assuming that we can get the parking right, incremental densities that could not only build more resilient, vibrant neighborhoods, but could across a larger area, even maybe produce greater densities than the high rises do. So, and I think that that is really kind of eye-opening to think about. So we're coming to the middle of the episode. Um, so we're going to take a quick break, but I'm going to continue continue my conversation with architect and urban designer Juan Mularat, where we're going to continue to talk about some of his meaningful work for both the city of Miami and abroad. So do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with architect and urban designer Juan Mularat. And right before the break, um, you were talking about some pretty counterintuitive things. You were mentioning how density and height are not 
um, to be equated. And I think you have been critical of hyper-dense, large-scale developments, particularly in a city of, like ours. You believe that, I don't know if I'm quoting you, but that it um, it ruins neighborhoods. And so, is that correct? Yes, but not the hyper-density, right? Okay. Um, it, it, it's about it's about the the new way that let's let's backtrack for a second cities were up until recently developed incrementally uh partly because of the borrowing power that uh, developers and property owners have today but partly because it was much more economical to build you know one lot at a time and that's why we parceled our cities and miami's dna for instance is uh, 50 by 100 which is a very typical lot to have in a city um the Part of the problem that we found in Buen Norte, in Little Havana, in Coconut Grove, in, in many of the neighborhoods that we work in, um, is that if you encourage or if you allow for larger development, um, which requires less, uh, less risk for a developer, let's say, uh, because it's one single development with many more units, whether they're more dense or not, we can debate that, but there's more units with one single project, one application, one, you know, one construction phase, uh, it means that they're going to take it. And so if they want to enlarge their development, it means that they're going to have to assemble many of these smaller properties that were platted originally in the city. Um, and that doesn't occur overnight. And so what we are seeing in Little Havana, when Norte was, you know, Norte had 10% of the land uh, vacant. Why? Because people were sitting on the land. They were trying to assemble more property and they were sitting on it. So you have all this land across the United States and in other countries, but let's just stick to the United States. You have all this land where property owners, developers are sitting on uh, because they're waiting to buy the property next door to be able to do a feasible project, which is a much larger project. And that leads to speculation and, you know, and prices increase and there's a lot of turnover. And, and, and also, I mean, I don't want to get too, too much into tax taxation, but, but our taxing system, our property taxes, our, our taxes, ta taxing system in, in most cities does not help, does not encourage the, uh, turning of urban land into usable homes and usable uh, destinations, commercial, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you have a lot of downtowns still in the United States that are full of vacant land that, you know, in my opinion, uh, we should make those property owners responsible to provide the type of housing and the, 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 to develop those properties within the urban core. Because if they don't develop the urban core, people are going to move out. They're going to find housing elsewhere. You, you know, we, we, we can't live in empty land, in vacant land. And, and there is a responsibility uh, that we need to discuss and, and, and make more of a debate, public debate on how if cities are not developed, if people are not responsible to develop and provide housing and, and other uses within the city core, what does that do to our infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, I, maybe I'll just say one thing about that, uh, particularly, I guess, uh, given the Miami context. I think one of the critical things that we do need to innovate dramatically is our parking 
policies because a lot of times what uh, to use your word not feasible is because these small parcels require so much parking that um building these incremental units that you're describing does become unfeasible. So I think if any, if there are any city officials out there listening and, you know, policymakers, we need to reform. We have to think differently about the way we uh, park our cities. We do a better job at, um, at housing our cars than housing our people. So on that note, um, I think I'd like to at least talk about one more example uh, that you've worked on for what is a very rich um, neighborhood in Miami, which is Little Havana, the Little Havana neighborhood of Miami. So again, can you tell us a little bit about this neighborhood for those in the audience that might not be familiar with it? And uh, what did you propose for it? Sure. So Little Havana was an unintended project uh, that we had at the uh, at our firm. Um it was a pro bono project, um, and we took it because uh, because we lived in and around it, and 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 so we felt that we were working all over the place. We were working on three continents back then, and 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 we were not really working in our neighborhoods, and and so we were not enjoying the benefits of uh, of some of the proposals that we were doing elsewhere, and we felt a responsibility, and we felt. Um, a, a a need and a want to do something in our backyard. Uh, it so happened that it, that was back in 2015, 2014, 15, um, that there was an effort called the bricolization of uh, East Little Havana. Uh, and for those who are not familiar, Brickle is our the equivalent of our financial district. It's yes. where we get the densest building stock. Um, and so when you talk about brickalization, is that the brickalization <laughs> was um so and, and Brickle is is adjacent to the East Lavana. So it was a, an attempt uh, by some private interests and the city to upzone Little Havana to up to high rises. Right, so the bricolization was. Uh, it doesn't matter what's there. Let's zone high rises and let the developers uh, go to town. Uh, and so we we saw that as um, a, a huge risk to the character of a very unique uh, and very important neighborhood in 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 Miami. Uh, and we took up the fight. Uh, we you know we're very careful always to pick our projects because we you know. Planning is political, and you want to make sure that you know the projects that you take, you calculate your risk. But once in a while, you've got a project that comes to you uh, that you believe wholeheartedly that it is the right thing to do. And Little Havana was one of those that we said, uh, you told me not to swear, but uh, to hell with our... No, I said you could swear. Oh, you told me I could swear. I hope I have not. Um <laughs> Uh, we said to hell with the politics. This is something that we really care about, and we took it. So, we started the project with no budget, no no client, no nothing, and immediately we went. Uh, we we did a few presentations with the neighborhood. We were very well connected in the neighborhood. Uh, we had a few presentations in the community, and suddenly, you know, if you try and do a good deed and people see that it is a good deed and it's worthwhile, the funders will come. And so in the case of Little Havana, we had the um, South Florida Health Foundation that came and said, we want to work with you. We want to 
fund with fund you and 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 figure out how how we can work together. And with them, we put together a a very a very good group of people. Uh, in parallel, I, I I would be remiss not to mention that there was uh, the National Trust for Historic Preservation had been here. And they had designated Little Havana as one of the most uh, endangered places in the United States. And so they were also very interested and they were around. So it, it, it was one of those perfect moments where really, really smart people had taken an interest in the neighborhood. And, and so did we. And, and so we, we took the lead um, into putting a master plan together with no political support, right? So that was a huge risk. Uh, because whatever we proposed, we had the risk that, you know, it was just going to be shelved, uh, which for a while it was. Um, and uh, and we put together a master plan that tackled several things. A very important one was historic preservation, right? Uh, and the protection of character, right? Yeah, so historic preservation and protection and ca- protection of character are sometimes paired. Um, but they were very unique not just buildings, but culture and and history and and um, and 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 social social structures that don't typically occur in other cities in the country, uh, and in part is because Little Havana is the Ellis Island of the South. It's the it's where immigrants land, right? Especially Cuban immigrants. Uh, and now, believe it or not, is less Cuban and very mixed uh, Central and Latin American, Central and South American uh, communities. And and the structure is very interesting because unlike in other neighborhoods where you don't have that much immigration, you need a support structure to be in place um, to be able to support newcomers. And so Little Havana was an incredible uh, experiment for us because we had to learn a lot. Um, think the things that are are seem so um, simple, but and yet so important. Like for instance, you know, at one point I remember going to one of our uh, meetings uh, with the with the with our steering committee, and I said, you know, Little Havana, we need we need we need people on the ground. We need people in the neighborhood. We need people everywhere so that we have as many uh, community, uh, uh, many residents as possible to our to our meetings and this and that. And I said, how about we pick a block captain, right? And every block has a captain and, and they rally their block and they, and I, I was stopped right there. Uh, and because apparently a block captain was too similar to um, the Castro Cuba uh, system in which they had people keeping an eye on people, right? Um, and so they, I would stop right there. I would. You know, this is politically, you know, the people have a memory of this in Cuba. You are going to create a a, a, a network of fear, and so we had to learn a lot of things that we didn't know. Uh, and we had to reinvent, and partly this is the agent of change. Every neighborhood is different. Little Havana was a completely different animal from what we had done in the past. Anyway, um, what we put together was a document that um, that was awarded afterwards uh, at uh, national level uh, because of its equity, diversity, uh, protection of history and culture, 
Um, partly it was awarded too, because not because of us, but because um, Little Havana is such an important place that um, a, a holistic vision uh, was necessary and it had never done be- never been done before. Um, it provided uh, policies and vehicles and methodologies for affordable housing, incremental development, welcoming developers, but make them behave within a certain with, within certain parameters. Uh, it included open space, which we have barely any in Little Havana. Um, in fact, we have this park where the slide. Um, there's a slide for kids, and at the end of the slide, it turns 90 degrees because it's two feet away from the roadway. I mean, that's how little the space is that our public, uh, you know, our public parks, they have to retro-engineer their, uh, you know, their their kids' playground so that kids don't end up flying into the street. But the way that we did the, the open space, open space, which is really important, because um, you can't, you 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 cannot imminent domain property right it's 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 politically it's it's not good and and you wouldn't want to be taking away property from people so we reinvented the way that people and public officials thought about the streets the streets at the end of the day are are a, a public um a public place and so we um we retro-engineered those streets that were there we proposed walkable streets. And so by turning some of those streets pedestrian, um, we basically increased the open space uh, proposal to more than 500%. Mm. You know, um, in listening to you and knowing this neighborhood well, I would say one of the leading challenges with neighborhood revitalization um, is the question of gentrification. It's like the G word, you know, and is gentrification simply an inevitable byproduct of urbanization or what can we do as urban designers and architects do, or, or maybe let's say specifically, what do you feel your work has been to contribute or think about the question of gentrification? So the G word, uh, <laughs> Gentrification is always a, a, a term that that is in everybody's uh, mind and 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 is discussed every time we have a project, um, and it's very 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 controversial. Um, but there's two sides to it, right? There's the positive and the negative, and and for those that are listening, they're probably at the edge of their chair. What can be positive about gentrification? Well, gentrification is about improving one's neighborhood. Okay, that cannot be negative. Everybody wants to improve. It's the American dream. You come here and you improve your life, right? So you improve where you live, you improve your neighborhood. Listen, if I, (laughs) and my wife and I always joke that we were the neighborhood gentrifiers because we were taking good care of our front yard in Little Havana, right? And, And taking care of your front yard can be seen as being a gentrifier. You're improving, you're improving the value of your property, in essence, you are putting pressure on your neighbors to also improve theirs. And, you know, there's a trickle effect where you are gentrifying. So gentrification has its positives. It also has its negatives, but not, not by gentrifying, not, not by gentrification itself, but what it leads to, which is displacement. Uh, you improve a place and so uh, prices go up and uh, people get displaced. Uh 
taxes also go up, and so it's more difficult for uh, for some people to stay. Um, so gentrification is uh, typically, uh, in most cases, um, the byproduct of revitalization, I would say. What is not necessarily a byproduct, if you are able to uh, put the right tools in place, is displacement, which is really the, there's no positive to that one, right? While gentrification has two sides, displacement is not a positive uh, result of uh, I guess unless it's like a willing displacement, unless you have, own a property and you sell it for, you know, a, I guess a great value and you decide to move. But in general, you're, you, I would say you were right. But let me go back and press you. So what tools, what tools are... Are in, need to be in place sure. in order to avoid that. So obviously, one of them is affordable housing um, and um, and the protection of the neighbors that exist there. You can do that by freezing taxes. We have here in Florida the homestead uh, exemptions, for instance, that uh, take care of uh, any added uh, tax that would be levied to you because of your increased uh, property value. That's you know, countywide, that's statewide. Um, but at neighborhood level, you could do the same thing. And you could do that uh, through tax increment funding, where, which is a, which is a, um, a tool that we use for uh, community uh, revitalization areas, right, the CRAs. Um, you could do that as well by um, incentive zoning, where you incentivize the developer to provide an affordable housing or to keep those neighbors in uh, in place. Uh, by the way, both of which, uh, or not, maybe all these methods that I'm telling you are, meth- are, are tools that we propose through our master plan um, for both Little Havana, Winwood Norte, and even, we haven't talked about it, the, the West Grove, which is also a project we finished a couple of years ago of an African-American uh, neighborhood um, that was seeing see they felt that they were being displaced they were not but they felt that they were being displaced and what was happening was that a very large amount of um of people were moving into the neighborhood and so they suddenly became where they were a majority suddenly they become they became a minority without necessarily being displaced but um Zoning is uh, is a, a huge a very important tool for uh, for keeping people in place uh, parking, believe it or not, is another one. Uh, providing transportation also uh, close to those areas that we are revitalizing is, is a big one too. Um, so, economic zoning, uh, ta- economic taxation, etc., and then the preservation of uh, existing structures is also important. In Little Havana, it was very tricky uh, to propose additional density and height um, because we were afraid that uh, developers would tear down the existing buildings. So we wanted to make the zoning enticing enough, but not to the point that we would risk the existing buildings. Mm. Going back to your question, ta- tax- taxation methods are important and freezing taxes to existing uh, neighbors. Uh, new building types are also important and proposing new building types where people have more of an option and there's uh, to, to uh, more of a variety of housing options. Um, and then uh, the, 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 the protection of, of, uh, of the existing property is also important. Yeah. I mean, I think when I listen to you, because I think it's important, you know, to understand um, 
you know, the kind of forces at work in the changing of neighborhoods. And I think the architect or the urban designer has the possibility of drawing through um, scenarios like the master plans uh, for uh, the the visioning of places in the future. And But I think a lot of the tools that allow you to implement that are beyond design, and they have to do with zoning and regulations and policies. So I think for the designers out there, they should listen to that. They should get more actively and politically involved, um, because I think that's how we basically change those invisible structures that guide the forms of our world. But believe it or not, we're coming to the end of the episode. And um, I ask all my guests one final uh, question. And um, Juan, I'm hoping, I'm going to impress you that you weren't able to tell me your favorite neighborhood, but what is your favorite city and why? Uh, My favorite city is the city that I'm from. Honestly, because I, I learned so much from Barcelona. Um, and, and, and I left when I was 14. Um, I was sent to boarding school because I was the black sheep of the family. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It's just that my parents were, were done with me. Um, I was sent to the UK, uh, and then I started missing what I had in Barcelona. And, and back in the 90s, Barcelona, I left in 91. In 92, they had their Olympics and they revitalized the Olympic Village and they did a tremendous job. In fact, they, there's a term called the, um, the Barcelona model. Um, and then obviously that was, that was what we had in Barcelona and, and the kind of work that they've done this, you know, lately, like the Superilla and, and it's, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful place to test new, uh, urban design techniques. And, and I, I just love going back to it. Yeah. Well, you come from an extraordinary city with a rich cultural and urban, uh, context, and it's also a place of home, which is linked to profound memories. So thank you, Juan, uh, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us uh, on On Cities. I, for one, learned a great deal and always enjoyed talking uh, to you. So thank you, Juan. Thank you. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 